Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, April 4th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, wishing a very happy birthday to my predecessor, commentary editor for 14 years, Neil Kozadoy. Happy birthday, Neil. And telling people that this is the last day that you can sign up for our Palm Beach Wednesday, April 6th live podcast. Uh, Wednesday afternoon in Palm Beach, Florida. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast. We have had an overwhelming response. It's very exciting. We are looking forward to seeing the people who have signed up at our three different uh, participation levels. And uh, it's gone better than we ever hoped it would. And we're really happy to see you. And we'd be happy to welcome some more people if you want to go to commentary.org slash live podcast to sign up for the event today. Because I this is really this is about it because we got to, we got to, we got to complete our list and have it all ready and do all that. So commentary.org slash live podcast. And where will we be on Wednesday? Who are we when we're in Palm beach? We are me and we are, we are, I, (laughs) we are grammatically incorrect. And aside from me, which is, I think grammatically correct. We have grammarian executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Keeps very close watch on our grammatical usage as we close uh, issues, as we are doing this week. We are closing our May issue this week. Uh, Very good grammarian, senior writer Christine Rosen. Excellent grammarian. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Mr. Grammar himself, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So the grammar on paper, I never want to see transcripts of me talking like this podcast because I am I am a stickler about grammar on the page and I am horrified by my use of grammar in speech. So uh, please, uh, please forgive me. Sometimes we get emails where people complain that I screwed up and 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 it's embarrassing so i but you know it's talking we're talking we talk five hours a week on this podcast so you got to give us a little bit of a break you know what they say you're a but you're a genius when you think fairly smart person when you write and an idiot when you speak (laughs) i haven't heard that before that's one is yes that is that is that is that is really good actually um, you know what else is really good? And I'm going to start here just before we get going. Um, I'm, I'm excited to welcome back David Bonson uh, as an advertiser to the podcast, commentary contributor, uh, and of course, uh, uh, the uh, head of the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal financial management services firm with uh, several billion dollars under management, uh, puts out two great newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. But I'm here to talk to you about his book, uh, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, available at Bar- Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all fine bookstores. Because given what is going on with our economy and how confusing our economy is and the economic dislocations of the last two years and whatever is going to happen as we go forward with this inflationary uh, spiral, uh, David's book, there's no free lunch. 250 economic truths is a must read, a must have. Uh, it is a the subject is free enterprise and how to uh, fight back against the attacks on it by the socialist left and now by many on the right too who have decided to join in with the socialist left in a kind of blanket indictment 
of the capitalist system, free markets, and how America pursues its economic interests. David's book extracts 250 key quotes from economists of the last 300 years and adds his own commentary and explanation to each expert. The result is a primer on economics that is all that is at once readable and engaging. Irving Kristol taught us that capitalism must be defended on moral grounds. David's book goes to the foundation of how and why that must be done. So get your copy of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths today. Get it. David Bonson, Bonson Group, There's No Free Lunch. And thanks for coming back to sponsor the Commentary Podcast. With that, uh, obviously, the world is awash in horror and anger and disgust and regret and a desire to see things made right. After the revelation of the massacre in Buka, uh, Ukraine, in which hundreds seem to have been shot in the back of the head and uh, pushed into a mass grave. Uh, Noah, uh, give me the give me a rundown here on where you think what what you think this means in terms of the progress of the war. It's very hard to say. Um, <clears throat> well, these are horrific images that we've been privy to, and when they're not coming out of the Ministry of Defense in Ukraine, there are a fair amount of Western reporters from uh, American and Western generally Western outlets that have been on the ground, that have photographed this evidence, that have seen mass graves dug up uh, with uh, civilian bodies, um, piles of bodies of whole families, uh, many men in particular, with their hands tied behind their backs and a bullet hole in the back of their heads, um, execution style uh, massacre. Uh, And we don't know how many bodies there are, it's several hundred. Um, And it's reflective perhaps of how Russia thought this war was going to go because these are being, Buka is a suburb, a very wealthy suburb, in fact, on the outskirts of Kiev. Um, it would be hard to think of a, of a, a similar uh, thing that you can wrap your heads around what this looks like, Yonkers, I suppose. Um, it's, a, it's a wealthy place and it's pretty well populated. And like Irpin uh, on the outskirts of Kiev, these uh, areas were taken early on in the war in the first week of fighting uh, during this blitz on Kiev, and Russia has subsequently retreated from these areas in order to re, uh, reconvene. They're in retrograde, and retrograde has been actually rather uh, messy, but they're apparently reconvening on the eastern uh, flank of Ukraine in order to fully encircle troops in, in eastern Ukraine and consolidate their gains in eastern Ukraine, giving up on the on the effort to take Kiev. But I guess the assumption was that no one would ever see this because they'd never have to retreat from these areas. It's, it's in concert, I suppose, with the strategy that we're seeing in places like Nikolaev and um, uh, Mariupol, where thousands of citizens are being forcefully exfiltrated from Ukraine and moved into Russia proper, where we don't know what's essentially happening to them, but we have some evidence. There was, uh, during the siege of Mariupol, there was a very well-publicized strike on a, uh, a maternity ward, a hospital. And in that strike, you saw images of these pregnant women um, leaving this, being removed from this hospital. Uh, one of them was a very famous picture of this young blonde woman. It's very pregnant. She was uh, removed to Russia proper and put on camera where she gave this uh, apparently coerced statement about how, how Russia is treating the citizens and how Ukraine probably kind of probably bombed itself there. Um, this is of a 
in keeping with the ex evacuation of officials, disappearance of officials inside Ukraine who are independence minded, who subsequently are, are not seen again unless they're liberated by Ukrainian forces, which actually happened once. Uh, and then they're replaced with pliant functionaries who um, who are dismissive of the crimes that Moscow is quite plainly committing. Uh, it's a very it's a familiar old sort of war. Uh, we haven't seen it in the better part of 80 years, but we're staring down the barrel of something very plain, very obvious. Russia's objectives here could not be more clear. It is to break Ukraine's national identity, to uh, transfer its citizens into something akin to a, a sovereignty maintained by Russia and to terrorize its people into compliance. So here, here is what strikes me about this strategy, which is um, it depends on things having happened that didn't happen. So it's the classic problem of a strategy that is a secondary, even if it's the, the ultimate purpose, it's a secondary strategy toward, you know, uh, behind winning the war and, you know, succeeding in uh, battle, having sort of battlefield site, site specific victories that, um, that tear the heart out of the, op, the tear the heart out of the, uh, the, the Ukrainians who are being aggressed against. Once that didn't happen, all these, you know, again, even though this is the longer aim, all of these uh, secondary desires, you know, sort of like the destruction, as you put it, sort of the destruction of the sense of Ukrainian national identity um, become an impossibility or they become twice as hard or 15 times as hard or 20 times as hard. And so um, it, it goes to how kind of crazily ambitious this war was. I mean, it's not enough that you have to go in with troops and then secure territory and hold it and then figure out an admi a way to administer, administer it and all that. You're also trying to do something very evanescent and complicated, which is break a sense of national identity, uh, whereas your action itself might harden that sense of national identity in a way that it has not been hardened you know, for a century. And um, and I'm also struck in the American context. And Christine, I think I, I want to ask you about this. I mean, I said from the outset of the war when Biden was being kind of weird about just as we're you know about how much he was willing to commit, right? And the whole discussion of the no-fly zone. Could there be? Well, we couldn't do a no-fly zone. That's an act of war. We would be in war. We might be in a shooting war with Russia. And I kept saying on the podcast that I I was not disputing the danger of the no-fly zone or that, you know, this was an incredibly difficult situation. I just thought that Western public opinion as this war went on was not going to be satisfied with half measures. And we're being told that all the measures that have been taken so far are not half measures, right? Incredible sanctions, they're incredibly brutal. They're, 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 they're tearing at Russia where, where they live and, you know, we're, we're doing this and we're doing that. We're gonna sell them $500 million. We're gonna get transfer $500 million worth of arms and all that. Then you see something like the Buka massacre, and you know the Western public opinion is going to say, "What are we doing? We've got to do something. We can't let stuff like this happen anymore. We we are complicit if Russia continues to behave this way towards civilians, and we are not stopping them. And that pressure is now, I think, going to. I thought it would abate by now. It's been, uh, I don't know, five and a half weeks." I'm not sure that the pressure is abating. I think it's going to get worse. Um, and of course, you combine that with the brilliance of Zelensky's PR campaign, 
and the brilliance of the Ukraine, the, just the way that Ukraine has played the information war here. And uh, we're not being allowed to look away. And they're not letting us look away. And we are, and the, the, it shocks the conscience. And, you know, people are going to want us to do more. And I don't think that more is lots more sanctions, which I think Biden is like set to announce in the next couple of days. Yeah, it was interesting last night, Zelensky appeared uh, in a taped message at the Grammys, um, which itself, again, very good, uh, good PR play because it would get international attention. Um, and one thing he said that struck me was that he said, you have to keep, you have to do something. You can't just be silent. Keep talking about this. Keep keep showing the world what you know, keep fighting against what's happening to us. That combined with all the, the obvious uh, war crimes that are happening and the constant drumbeat of we're, we're starting to investigate war crimes, starting to look at it. And, you know, it's not just the murder that there have been reports, horrifying reports of rape used as a as a war crime, basically by by Russian troops, just systematically raping every woman they come across in front of, you know, children raped in front of their mothers and just just horrifying, horrifying reports of how they are. They are clearly violating um, all kinds of international law. I guess the 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 con- question I have is, do Americans understand that us uh, increasing our response um, is the answer? Because when you start talking about war crimes, people start thinking about, okay, well, let's drag this guy in front of the Hague. Let's do all these. They're international institutions that are going to prosecute that. All we can do is, is sort of say, this is horrible, hashtag Ukraine, you know, all the stuff that's been going on. I'm not sure that that's why I think Zelensky was make is continues to make these pleas to to average Americans saying, don't forget us. Don't you know, please continue to say what needs to be said here. I, I saw that as a as a bit more um, not desperation, but as as a as a concern he might have that the American attention span could possibly turn away. Well, hey, I, yeah, I, I just want to say I don't <clears throat> excuse me. I don't really f- see the pressure exactly that you're speaking of. I. It's a popular sentiment uh, among the American people, if, if polls are to be believed, that, that we should be more involved. But to me, I don't feel um, a sort of atmospheric pressure campaign here, certainly not on the administration to, to actually take more forward-leaning measures. I mean, there's, there's, not, there's not this sort of massive outpouring in the streets, really. You know, it's not... Um, I mean, there have right. been some, some, some protests, but... So, so I think, I think, at least for the time being, I, I, I think there's, there's not going to be any talk of a grand shift. I, I, I'm not even talking about a grand shift. I don't mean that we're going to put boots on the ground or we're going to do a no-fly zone or something like that. I'm talking very generally speaking, which is, um, we don't know. The pressure is put on politicians, not, not on us. And so, yeah, there, are, there are. There are moments when you have like mass demonstrations, though they're usually about they usually involve domestic politics. Like we don't we're supposed to have a mass demonstration in America about what Russia is doing to Ukraine. That's a little bit of a bank shot. And that's not the sort of thing that will turn out, you know, a million people necessarily, though. Who knows? I mean, it it could yet happen. But uh, what I mean is like we don't know what calls are going into congressional offices. We don't know. And, and people who are uniquely sensitive to polling uh, can see that this is remains an incredibly high um, high interest issue uh, for for people and particularly for you know literate people uh, and people who are interested in politics who are voters who are voters in the midterms 
And I, I think they're feeling it. I mean, I don't think Biden would be feeling the necessity to announce. And they're announcing weird. <clears throat> they're now talking about weird sanctions, like sanctioning people who do business with people who do business with Russia, you know, that kind of third order, third order stuff, because maybe they're running out of sanctions and le- until, until the, but I, uh, no, I'll give you an example. So forget us, Western Europe. I mean, there is real pressure being levied in Western Europe by the populations in Western Europe to cut off Russian oil purchases. That's huge. Like we're talking about countries where Russian oil supplies 30 to 40% of the oil they receive. And this is now, you know, sort of like an open uh, discussion. And I think polling shows, you know, majority support for it in a lot of these countries. Uh, and that's that's very big. So I don't know. I just think that the you've got to do something, which is about where the level of sophistication of the involvement of the ordinary American is going to go, just ha- doesn't relent and hasn't relented. And this is yet another example of it. it i thought it's interesting to get to the cultural point that zelensky turned down the oscars unless the oscars decided i it think was that too was a logistical problem actually they made some uh, real efforts to try to get him on there and it was just logistically no he surprised. may not have wanted to do it but I here's what's that. interesting about doing the grammys and not the oscars if he was involved in the decision making or whoever is helping him the grammys skew a lot younger Right. I mean, the, the Oscars are a ceremony for old people, um, you know, a, a very old audience. The Grammys are a young audience. And I think he understands that. Or somebody there who is helping him, who was very sophisticated, understands that keeping the attention and support of the of people, you know, between the ages of 12 and 30 in the United States is an enormously effective public relations strategy, keeping social media involved, you know, uh, kids talking to their parents about what we're supposed to do to help the poor Ukrainians and uh, young people who are interested in political activism, having this at the forefront of their, of the, of their, of their minds, again, creates pressure that may not lead to, you know, a no fly zone, but it can lead to all sorts of other stuff short of a no-fly zone, it's like when Zelensky spoke before Congress and said, okay, you don't want to give me a no-fly zone? Give me, you know, the, 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 the missile. Give me, the, give me missiles. Like, you know, it's like he asks, he, he makes the hard ask or the big ask and then is willing to settle for the lesser, but unless he has enough oomph behind the big ask, he can't really down, you know, the, the, that's his game is to maximize the pressure and I just think it's working and, and, and the events themselves are, are serving his, are serving that interest, even if they are, you know, catastrophic for his nation. Um, so with that, let me take a pause and talk to you about our second advertiser today, Bowl and Branch. You know, these sheets, the best 100% organic cotton threads on earth for superior softness and better night's sleep. Sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft. They get softer with every wash. And uh, forget thread count. Poland Branch gives you thread quality because it doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible. And Bowling Branch uses the highest quality threads on earth for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. 
Sheets made with threads so luxurious, they're beloved by three U.S. presidents. Feel buttery to the touch, super breathable, perfect for every season, over 10,000 stellar reviews. And Bolin Branch signature sheets come in nine versatile colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King. You'll immediately feel the difference in their of their iconic signature sheets, 100% free from toxins, no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. And Bolin Branch sheets fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. And best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. So get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at bolandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code COMMENTARY. So uh, there are some very excited TradCon Americans uh, tonight, uh, today, uh, last night, uh, with the news that um, Viktor Orban had... um, had won a third straight election in Hungary with a, I think, a two-thirds majority. His party getting a two-thirds majority in the uh, in the parliament, um, and uh, and Viktor Orban, as people know, is very beloved now of the Tradcons. And my old friend Rod Dreher now described him as the leader of the West, uh, which is an interesting thing to say about somebody who has Noah called of uh, Vladimir Zelensky a problem or an embarrassment or a, a distraction something he dismisses obstacle, obstacle yeah um and and is very much aligned Opponent with Putin, so. is what i see okay uh, i don't know you're and 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 is effectively uh, is effectively aligned with, with 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 vladimir putin in this um uh in this um uh, ideological loose ideological confederation uh putin of course having uh launched war on the european continent uh for the first time in 84 in in 75 years so um what do we make of this uh how much how much uh eli lake in his uh cover story in commentary this month which is called the world has changed and we must change with it points out the oddity of people in the united states thinking that this uh culturally homogeneous a small country on the Danube um, is, you know, is the leader of the world as opposed to, say, the United States, which has 330 million people and, you know, is extraordinarily diverse and is 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 reckoning with all kinds of things that you don't have to reckon with in Hungary when you're a, you know, a small out of the way country with uh, very little cultural or uh, footprint outside of um uh, intellectuals that you suck up to and fly over and give them parties and feed them Pollock Shinton, and then they think that you're the greatest things in sliced bread. So my thinking on this briefly, because uh, it, it dovetails with something that's happening in the West on the, on the right and the left, is <clears throat> the war in uh, Ukraine and Russia's conduct of that war in Ukraine is extremely inconvenient. It represents a real obstacle in the path of this sort of coexistence that they were trying to cobble together the the right nationalists and Viktor Orban being one of the leading figures in this uh, condition that, um, like he said, despite the international situation, the further development of bilateral partnerships fully meets the interests of Russia and Hungary. It's just that Russia's, you know, massacring civilians. And that's really annoying because what we need them to do is surrender. And to some degree or another, and there's a piece that, John, you highlighted for us today in the Washington Post that essentially makes the same argument similarly, 
that it's unclear whether, you know, Zelensky can make the concessions necessary to end this war um, on terms that I suppose are favorable, mutually favorable, that it's increasingly hard to see those terms when you have events like the Book of Massacre and half a dozen others probably, or more than that, behind Russian occupied lines. Um, this is an, an in, kind of an insane thing to think. It's a very craven thing to think, first of all, but it's, it's a nutty thing to think in part because you know, this, this idea that the West, or this idea that Zelensky wasn't fully prepared for this war and was maybe downplaying it ahead of this, uh, this invasion should be r- really disproven by just the facts on the ground at this point. And I remember talking about this at the time when Zelensky was like, ah, okay, you know what, they're not going to Noah, Noah, hold, hold off, because I think we need to, you're making an important point, but I I'm think, I, I think you're, you're, you're being a little too elusive. So there was a story in the Washington Post called Zelensky entering new stage of war faces political test. That's what you're referring right. to by Paul Sun, Shane Harris, Mar- Michael Birnbaum and squad Mechenet. And what's interesting about this piece is that it's got four bylines, but it's only about a thousand words long. Usually you would get like five thousand words if you had a piece with that many bylines. And the whole idea here is a portrayal of Zelensky. And it's a negative. It's a bizarrely negative portrayal of Zelensky, which is like, you know, uh, Bill Burns, the deputy secretary of state, flew over to tell him that Russia was going to invade and he didn't listen and he refused to have air raids and have have the public do public safety drills. And then he didn't listen and he 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 kept saying he didn't think and people didn't think they were going to invade Ukraine. But we in America said that we were going to invade and then then they invaded. And then you know what? Yeah, amazingly, he did pretty well. He did really well. It turned out that he knew he was really a leader and people were really following him. But now he's gone too far because now he's embraced his position as a nationalist leader. And how is he going to make all the concessions that he needs to get out of this war with Russia? Because he's obviously going to have to kowtow and fall to his knees and lick Putin's feet. That's just the way of the world. That's how it should be. But now he's out on too far of a limb and you're reading this my eyes are that this is you know public to the lead piece the piece of analysis in the washington post that has decided five weeks in that it is time to turn on zelensky for now being for now having put himself in a position where he's going to be too uncompromising for for winning it's for really winning. really unfortunate that he's doing this what a stinking hot pile of garbage the notion here that we that they were unprepared for war should be disproven by your own eyes. It was we who were unprepared for this war. Zelensky spent the run up to it. Ta- and a lot of people were very naive about this, especially on the right. He spent the run up to this war talking down the prospects of invasion for very instrumental purposes. One, to prevent his economy from seizing. Two, to ensure that foreign direct investment didn't dry up. And three, to keep weapons shipments coming. There was a big lobbying effort behind the scenes on the part of nations like Germany and maybe lesser degree Turkey, to not invest too heavily in this because the war would be over in three or four days. That was the assumption in Western Europe. It wasn't worth investing in this, in uh, Ukraine's sovereignty because they wouldn't be able to, to maintain it on their own. Meanwhile, the guy was turning his country into a fortress. He was arming and training the civilian population. Uh, he developed a clearly successful war plan and distributed all this necessary civil defense documents, whether or not Ukrainians read them, that was up to them. 
but all the uh, access to bomb shelters that they've been taking advantage of is because the Ukrainian government pointed out where all the bomb shelters were and had drills to get the civilian population to take advantage of it. We just ignored all of it. We ignored the signs and that that message that, you know, calm down people was not designed for internal consumption. It was entirely de devoted to the international community inside Ukraine. There was quite a bit of apprehension over the prospect of an intervention, even though nobody believed that something like that would be possible because it's so apocalyptic. But it did occur and they did develop a plan for it. And that plan has been wildly successful. And now we're confused and frustrated by the fact that they're not surrendering because they're winning on the battlefield. It's what's important about this piece is not that The Washington Post published it. It's a question of the mindset behind it and whether what it reflects is a significant degree of uh, of Western and maybe even Biden State Department opinion that while they are paying all the lip service that they need to about the bravery and wonderment of the Ukrainian resistance and all of that, they're just starting to get very nervous that Ukraine is now putting itself in a position where, you know, it can't surrender. I mean, that's essentially what's going on. It's like saying, you know, things are going really well for the Ukrainians, but they really need to be planning for their surrender. Well, and that's in keeping actually with this sort of NatCon right. You know, they just issued a thing saying, let's de-escalate our involvement in Ukraine. And 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 in a broader sense, the, the Orban, you know, Hungary regime serves that portion of the right wing in the same way that the that the you know small Scandinavian countries serve the socialist left. They're these perfect utopias to them where you don't actually have to practice what you preach. You can you can demand constant tolerance for your own religious views here at home while insisting that what's beautiful about Hungary is that there's no tolerance for the cultural choices that you don't approve of because of your religious choices and the protections and freedoms you have to exercise them in the U.S. It's incredibly, uh, it, it's just totally hypocritical. But this idea that there's this perfect utopia, and it's perfect in part because, as you say, John, it's completely homogenous, small, and doesn't have any uh, large global uh, obligations or aspirations. So it's like it is kind of a little Disney world for, for you know, ideologists in the same way that I think a lot of Scandinavian countries are for the socialists here. I actually think it's sillier than that. Um, I think I think the analogy, I mean, I mean, and scarier, the, I think the analogy is is it's what Latin American Marxists were to the left in the 60s and 70s. Um, it's it, it, because it's all about the sort of romantic uh, flavor of people who really fight. And it know. also is an indictment of us. Right. I mean, this is all well, that's besides, the most that, important that urbanism. Yeah. Yes, our tolerance is weakness. Right. Right. He's a proxy to indict Western perfidy and cultural decline and all that nonsense. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't even know that it's nonsense. I mean, I think the, 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 the central part, which is I'll own that then it's nonsense. which no, which 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 which, as I said, Eli, Eli reflects is that um, um, Orban is the is is the uh, is the leader of, of a country uh, that does not have the cultural cross currents that we have and that other Western countries have and is uh, and 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 therefore is in a much different position and analogizing us to them or assuming that a leader like him can give us some sense of where we should be heading uh, is, is, is interesting. Uh, but of course there's something foolish about it. And then it gets to be considerably less foolish when you see where he aligns himself in the moral struggle of 2022, which is a one country swallowing up another country. And he's on the, he's on the side of the bad guy. 
And we're now supposed to celebrate his victory. He's on the side of the bad guy. Not saying that we need to believe, as some people do, that, you know, his election is the worst thing that's ever happened to the West because, you know, he's a monster and a totalitarian because I don't believe that either. Um, I don't even think he's that much of an authoritarian. But nonetheless, uh, you know, he is not he is he has made his choice. And it's not like the complicated choice that, say, uh, you know, Israel's had to make in dealing with having having to walk a fine line because it needs to have a certain amount of cooperation with Russia over the skies of Syria so that a shooting war doesn't break out between between uh, Israel and Russia. And therefore, it can't just like, you know, unload like a ton of bricks or or as, you know, as the as the um, reliably stupid Julia Yaffe, you know, said yesterday, always happy to look to attack um, Israel as a, you know, as a secular American Jew uh, with uh, with with a Russian background, you know, like, well, why aren't they giving them Iron Dome then? Which would not work in in Ukraine. That's not, that's not what Iron Dome does. Anyway, I, I'm just struck by the fact that, you know, we're, we're now, we're once again being told that we should look for more leadership to, uh, to uh, Hungary, which is, which has made the wrong moral choice um, when it comes to the most important thing going on in the world right now. Um, and I, I don't know, there's, it's not like there's much to be done about this, right? I mean, there's no, uh, there's no real, there's no real help for this, right? I mean, this fight isn't really about Hungary and it's, it's about us. And it's, it's this, it's this anti-American turn that has been taken by the, by the, uh, by the nationalist right that they just, they don't like America anymore and they, and they are looking for inspiration from leaders abroad. And that's where both Abe's and, and Christine's uh, choice of, um, you know, of, of, of analogy is, you know, either it's, either it's, uh, you know, Che and, and Castro or the Sandinistas or, or it's, or it's the, you know, gentler European socialist countries for the left, um, the Scandinavian countries that had, you know, cradle to grave welfare and, Apparently, we're all, you know, just paradigmatic. For people who fancy themselves to be so morally attuned with such a fine, finely tuned moral compass, to be confronted with such a black and white ethical issue and to be confounded by it just undermines, exposes the extent to which this uh, ideological tendency, wouldn't even call it an ideological, just sort of a tick, um, is really underdeveloped. It's 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 a homunculus ideological view that doesn't really have a lot of mooring or intellectual background. It just it it is buffeted by events and then sort of retroactively conform conforms to make them make sense to this worldview. Okay, Freud would have something to, to, to say yeah. about I was just gonna say Freud would have something to say about the fact that they all tend to embrace strong men, you know, kind of uncritically love the strong yeah. man. So I would just and say when this, confronted and with, to... one, with with a, a truly masculine symbol of resistance and uh, resolve, they are put off by it. They're a little threatened by it. Right. Because the resistance is supposed to be, is supposed to be to, um, to social ills, not to, not to actual violence. Right. Resistance is supposed to be to the depredations of social liberalism, not to a country swallowing up another country. (laughs) That's, 
that's part of it. Um, I think, but I, I would also, I think it's also where, where, where this gets to, uh, uh, for, whatever I, I, I lost the thread. So I'm going to talk to you instead about ExpressVPN. Cause look, um, if you watch Netflix or you, you know, you boot up your computer, you watch Netflix, you watch whatever Apple TV plus or Paramount plus or something like that. And you do so without using ExpressVPN. It's like buying tickets to a Taylor Swift concert, but only being allowed to watch the opening act. Um, because here's the thing: like if you have ExpressVPN and you log in and you and you change the country uh, that you originate from, which ExpressVPN allows you to do, there's a whole lot of content on these services that you can get to that is blocked in your own country. And you're still you're you're still paying your whatever you're paying thirteen fourteen fifteen dollars a month. You should be able to access that stuff. Oh, it doesn't let you from here, so it will let you if you use ExpressVPN, where you can control uh, Netflix, where you want to get Netflix or other streaming websites. Um, why choose ExpressVPN over other VPNs? Because it's got blazing fast speeds. You can stream in HD with zero buffering. It's compatible with all your devices: phones, laptops, media consoles, smart TVs. And it works with other streaming services like BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and more. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com slash commentary to get an extra free months of ExpressVPN for free. Now, maybe we're going to say something that will be of comfort to the Tradcons. So everybody's been watching over the last month, six weeks, as as there has been this freak out over the supposedly the the uh, the brilliantly uh, propagandistically misnamed and misnomered and misconsidered a don't say gay bill in Florida, which is not a don't say gay bill. And the effort to create conditions under which a company that's the largest employer in Florida, meaning Disney, is forced by cultural circumstance to become an active player against the don't say gay bill, which of course is funny because it only became an active player after the bill had passed uh, the legislature and was on its way to the governor's desk for signature. So the idea was that first Disney said it wasn't going to get involved, which makes sense because it's a politically controversial issue and uh, it's not their bailiwick. And then everybody in Hollywood screamed at them and yelled at them and they have a new CEO who is uh, not unstable ground with his cultural, with the people who create the Disney cultural product. And so he apologized and said, yes, we're against it. We're so against, oh, are we against it? And then the PR people start leaking that they had been lobbying against it in the state capitol before it came out, uh, whereupon I think somebody at the Free Beacon went and talked to the uh, speaker of the Florida state legislature who said, we never heard a word from any Disney lobbyist in Florida. So this is just a lie. And now uh, Ron DeSantis in a brilliant act of jujitsu has basically said, don't you come in here, you, you know, largest entertainment company on earth and start telling Floridians and their elected officials how their schools should work. Go blow. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm the elected governor of the state. The people who voted on this bill are the elected officials representing Floridians. You're sitting out there in Florida in your mansions. Go away. This is a fantastic populist issue for him politically. Uh, it plays very badly outside of 
the uh, commanding heights of the cultural ramparts. And I think even more notably, uh, somebody started leaking to Chris Rufo these internal Disney videos of uh, creative types at Disney saying, okay, forget schooling or whatever. We are trying, we are literally trying to use Disney uh, product now to propagandize for trans issues and for, you know, uh, and, and to, and to send messages about uh, homosexuality to small children. That's our goal. It's our aim. We're sticking it in there where you don't see it coming. Um, and they're saying it, these videos are out. Uh, it's very clear from Disney product that they've decided to go explicitly with this message anyway. And, um, and then, uh, the reaction to this and to people saying, well, okay, Disney is, uh, here, Disney has this bizarre district in Florida, uh, where it is basically allowed to set like issue liquor licenses and it's like, like the Vatican. It has its own law. <laughs> like Disney yeah, it law. has its own law, the <laughs> Reedy Park, something or other uh, compact, uh, which is which is how it ended up building Disney World in Orlando and becoming the largest employer in Florida, um, uh, which was a good deal for Florida to make in 1967 when this compact was first reached. But I think now the initial idea, which was we, this is not for us to get our hands dirty with, this is not our issue, which was what Bob Chapek and Disney originally did with this bill. Um, there are now really serious discussions of revoking Disney's control over this Lake Buena Vista area, um, because if it's going to get involved in politics and it's going to start lobbying against <laughs> Republican politicians and, and, and things like that and let pieces of legislation, then whatever special status and standing it has been granted by by the legislature should be revoked. Uh, uh, can I just add yeah. one one thing, which is that you said early on that you know the Disney was forced to kind of come out against this this bill, but it, it, I think it's a little more complicated. I think the, what what's happened in the last few weeks with Disney is an example of when institutional capture rubber hits the road. So I think Disney has been uh, under the sway, as many large corporations in this country have been, of the diversity, equity, inclusion narrative, you know, particularly post-George Floyd. They have these like so-called brave space conversations where anyone can stand up and talk about their victimization. And, you know, a lot of the kind of crazy stuff we've been hearing about out of corporate America over the last few years. And they have a fairly activist group of, of um, both executives and regular employees who, who share this, but I but it seems to be not the vast majority of people. It certainly has been, as a family-friendly company, it's always been politically neutral on these serious issues. They've, that's just always been their, their issue. And it sounds like that's what they were going to continue with, as you said, but they, I'm curious as to why they finally decided to cave to the pressure of their internal demands, because it's like the New York Times when it suddenly caves in, on its journalistic standards because the young, angry, you know, hotheads on the Slack channel are calling for someone's uh, head. So I, I think that it shows um, how quickly they topple on that issue at the same time that nobody internally at Disney is concerned about the fact that they were filming Mulan near a Uyghur concentration camp in China. <laughs> like they, they actually pick and choose their human rights activism very carefully. And it always tends to be very close to home. I will also say that I think you know, Chris Rufo's great. He gets all this leak, all these leaked documents. He also is, a, there's a lot of hyperbole that he then layers on pretty thick. I think if you're interested in what's going on at these corporations, just go straight to the source and look at those leaked videos. 
they don't say that, you know, they're going to make all half of the content gay. What they say is we want ultimately half of the content to have to, to quote, you know, help underrepresented communities. That could be a lot of different things. So um, the hyperbole is annoying to me because if you just listen to what people are saying on those videos, it's bad enough. So I would encourage people to really just go to the source each time and, and look at the le leaked videos, read the leaked memos. You'll see what's happening. It's very, very, it's a very big deal that, that, that Disney broke that. And it's an awesome thing that DeSantis is going to start. He's like, if he wants them to play politics, I think that's a politics they're going to lose. If you look at the demographics of Florida and you look at how parents of small children, which is Disney's main market, feel about these kinds of, of activities. So correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't been following too closely, but I think I, I stumbled across this. I think it was a video, right? The Rufo uncovered. <laughs> where this yeah. executive saying that uh, in a certain period of time, roughly half of the Disney characters in, in she didn't say that products. he said that in a tweet, the video itself, oh. she didn't say that okay. on their website. They say that they eventually want half of underrepresented groups right. to be okay. you know, represented. Yeah, it's just artistically ham fisted, because when you impose that kind of political um, ob objective on art, then you end up making really stupid art. <clears throat> like there's just you sacrifice all the subtlety to it. And we were talking about this before we went on. Um, is that my family and I watched the Jungle Cruise over the weekend, which is that rock movie. And it was actually quite good. But one of the characters in there has to be very explicitly gay, not implicitly gay, because it's implied throughout. But then you got to like really lay it on thick. Just I'm gay. Come right out with it as much as you possibly can to to spoon feed the audience with a theme that was otherwise unmistakable to anybody who would watch this cultural product. So it takes your audience uh, for a bunch of idiots who can't understand subtext or uh, nuance or uh, you know contextual themes, but, because otherwise you would. It's not like it's it's hard to but notice, it, but they just don't trust is, the audience to to know it. They have to be hit in the face with it. But no, That's I got to disagree with you because the character is there to be gay, right? In other words, the character is not there to serve. That character in Jungle Cruise does not serve the plot of Jungle Cruise in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. He is there to be the gay character and to, and so to, that and there to are so perpetuate stereotypes, the, I might add. Right. Yeah, he's he's a dandy. He like he dresses a lot. Right. He, he's going out and fancy. Right. So it's a very it's not my, objectionable. My, it's not no, no. it's not something that takes you out of the plot line. It's just when they're like, hey, in case you didn't notice, I'm gay. No, no but just the point right is not the it actually you ruins your ability to sustain disbelief. No, the point is not in case you didn't notice. The point is. We are putting a gay character here and we are going to get credit for the character being gay by saying he's gay and we are going to tell everybody that he's gay and then nine-year-olds will hear that he's gay and he's likable and therefore they'll like gay people and that is that is where that that goes. That's it, yeah. So exactly. the thing so is, really, this, 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 isn't about, this isn't about representing the underrepresented. This is about getting credit for representing the celebrated. Right, exactly. That, that's that's why this. That's why they, so they they choose the the causes they choose because they're they're pushing on an open door. Look, I mean the the, the simple look. The simple fact of the matter is why why Disney got itself crosswise of this has to do with complicated internal Disney politics owing to the retirement of Bob Iger, uh, its brilliant CEO, his replacement by a guy named Bob Chapek, who 
And then Iger, like all, you know, self, he decided he was going to retire and he left with great garlands and hosannas. And then he was unhappy that he had retired and he starts going back in and trying to run things as some, you know, because the pandemic needed him and this and that. And then he and Chapek started having wars with each other. And there are now different camps in Disney and Chapek, who is a business guy and not a creative guy and ran the parks and stuff like that. Chapek is a uh, Chapek needs to has this uh, there's this uh, hostility to him from the creative teams inside Disney. And uh, it was a target rich environment, therefore, because he was already on the defensive for some for various reasons, Chapek. And then there was this whole thing. Well, I don't want to work for Disney anymore. I can't be here anymore as as an animator because it's not objecting enough to something that has no control over and should have no interest in whatsoever. And he looked at the field of battle, Chapek, and decided that he needed to sue for peace with the activists. And this is how these corporations, as you say, this is where the rubber meets the road, that, that, um, that, that the path of least resistance in the short term was to quiet down the controversy by saying, I'm sorry, I didn't really understand how sensitive an issue this was. I'm learning on the job and we really are against this sort of terrible thing and we're going to stand against it. And in the long run, they may lose their tax, this, this weird tax district that they control. And that's going to be bad for them. They also so, have copyright earmarks that they get over and over again from Congress for, for a lot of the stuff that's still under copyright protection, very valuable, financially valuable stuff under copyright protection right. that could also then be, you know, if they want to play this but, game, there's a lot more right. than just. But th- this is this, I think, is a key point, actually, which is that um, when it comes to if you are going to start playing politics with these things. It is an act of unilateral disarmament to assume that Republicans and conservatives aren't going to counterattack. If you are going to start bringing political power to bear in non-political circumstances, people are not going to remain silent. It's just that simple. You don't get to get everything you got by being quiet on this front. Then you become an activist on this front and they're not being a counterattack. And this is part of the whole thing where people say, oh, what is this freak out? They're all freaking out about Disney. Why are they freaking out? It's like they didn't freak out. Uh, you know, there is a there is a an effort being made by cultural by by cultural institutions to change the character of the American social structure. Uh, and gender structure and sexual structure and all of that. And that is not coming from the right. (laughs) That is coming from the left. And one of the ideas on the left is you people who don't like this, you have no right to speak. You're bigots, you're monsters, you're racists, you're, you know, you're homophobes and uh, you have no right to speak. And when you speak, you're speaking uh, from with, with ill causes, as opposed to what's going on, which is, they're making advances into the way that Americans think about things and they are imposing new thought processes or attempting to impose new thought processes and new ideas through junky popular culture, superhero shows on the CW and, you know, glee and stuff like that. All this is a whole thing. And then when people say, Hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like, I I don't want my kid to watch this yet. 
He's eight years old. I don't want it's the like the don't say gay bill. It's like I don't want my kid getting lectured about gender, uh, you know, gender nonconformity in second grade. I don't want to be having those conversations yet with my children. Stop doing that. And then that's like, how dare you? How can you say that? You're suppressing the speech of adults. You're you're suppressing people. And it's like, no, there is a time for things and you do them in time. And this is it is not your business to impose. Make me have conversations with my kids about sex. I do not want to have. You're at war with me as a parent. You're at war with my you're at war with my household and you're at war with my deepest held convictions. Well, but this is a war of deeply held convictions. I mean, it would be wrong to discount the other side of this argument, which I think has a valid point insofar as that this bill, I do believe, is very poorly written and could ultimately be struck down on free speech grounds because it ultimately imposes um, uh, limits on expression of people who are adults in the class. It's very complicated because there's all sorts of things that 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 a teacher uh, in, you know, of, of a second grader would not be allowed to say. And it does not have universal right to free speech in a classroom. And it changed the wording from instruction, uh, from from uh, discussion, which was then became allowed to instruction. So the idea was that that they want to kind of focus on curricular things. I will also say, though, that Disney uh, Disney is at odds with a lot of its own employees here, too. Just the theme park is what, like 80,000 employees? Not they had a protest the other day and it reminded me of the Netflix protest. Pretty small turnout for people saying, you know, protesting the don't the supposedly don't say gay bill. A lot of people who work at Disney are parents, too. A lot of people who work at Disney are conservative voters. A lot of people who work at Disney do not share the kind of diversity, equity and inclusion narrative, even if their corporate overlords uh, do. And even if their corporate overlords insist they sit through these you know sessions once a year for for hr reasons so they i i a lot of the pushback hopefully will also come from people who work there who say you know either quietly refuse to comply or just put push back and say we don't want we just want politics to stay out of our jobs we just want to do our jobs that does us for today uh we'll be back tomorrow for abe christina no i'm john pot keep the candle burning